This is Fully Vested, a weekly podcast where Jason Rowley and Graham Peck discuss technology and venture capital investing. This week, we discuss Mary Meeker and Bond Capital's special COVID-19 trends report. The show was recorded on May 2nd. You can learn more at fullyvested.co. Uh, so, Graham, are you familiar with my uh, uh, somewhat uh, expensive habit of uh, of buying very pricey jeans from Japan? Uh, I think you've mentioned it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, I indulged uh, I, I I indulged that that habit once again by um, I bought a really fun fun T shirt from a company that I like that I'm not going to mention the name of because they're not a sponsor. But um, I've spent so much damn money at uh, at at their various shops in like San Francisco and Seattle. Um, the shirt says "Home Alone 2020." <laughs> Oh boy, uh, uh, it's gonna be that kind of show, man. Um, is it uh, is it is it wearing thin on you to uh, be at home for so long these days? Yeah, actually, I think this would be this. We should talk about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the past. The, not gonna lie, like the past uh, two weeks ago. You know, for the I was in I was at a family spot near uh, Lake Michigan in uh, in Indiana. Um, and you know, this past week I've been at home and I'm not going to lie, man, like this was, this has not been my best week. Um, mm, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, Is there I, anything oh, our, uh, listeners can do to help you out, Jason? No, unfortunately. I mean, you guys could send me uh, very expensive, uh, Japanese pants. Uh, you can, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, uh, uh, consume lots of content on uh, golden.com. Sure, consume lots of content on on golden.com. You can uh, send me uh, tweets. My uh, Twitter handle is Jason underscore Rowley, um, R O W L E Y. Uh, if you guys send me uh, friendly tweets and DMs, I, I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Not to be confused with the owner of the uh, Phoenix Suns. No, uh, that Jason. Okay, so so this is a bit of a Jason Rowley lore here. Um, there's, there's oh boy! A, so there's a Jason Rowley that owns the the Phoenix Suns, and if you Google my, if you Google the name Jason Rowley, okay, yeah. So Phoenix Suns Jason Rowley show, still shows up as number one. However, uh, uh, at least on my version of the Google, um, which is different for everybody, um. Uh, my Twitter handle is number two, and I'm in this lifelong battle that I don't think the other Jason Rowley knows about for me to ultimately outrank that Jason Rowley that owns the Phoenix Suns on the Google.com search machine. Well, I've got bad news for you. Uh, if I uh, open up an incognito uh, browser, oh, no. uh, then, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to rain on your parade. Oh, tell me about it. Tell me about it. But, but your your TechCrunch uh, uh, profile, uh, is author profile, is the first thing that comes up that's you. Uh-huh. And that's not until the one, two, three, four, fifth thing, not including the video or photo search sections. You know what? So, I, I don't have the and, I don't have the Jason NBA's Rowley, SEO budget. And Jason Rowley's son's Twitter uh, comes up as uh, item number two for me. Oh, so even oh, Twitter, kill, the Jason me. Rowley, that other Jason Rowley comes up first. Killing me, Graham. I'm sorry. This is terrible news. 
I've already I'm been sorry. a little emotionally fragile this week, and now you didn't, and now you dumped this upon me. Oh, geez. Well, <laughs> no, you know what happens look, when you search for Graham Peck? Uh-oh. That's going to be scary. So, is Graham short for anything? It'd be great if it was like some like excellent, excellent uh, shortening of like, oh, uh, Grammaticus Peck. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. <laughs> oh wow, the first thing that comes up for me is my portfolio on or my uh, my team uh, listing on Cultivation Capital. In fact, that's the only thing about me that's on the first page. If you Google Graham Peck, huh? Hmm. Well, good for you, man. Yeah, I guess so. Hmm. So, um. Back to what we were talking about earlier, though. Uh, you know, this wasn't necessarily like, you know, my absolute uh, favorite week of my life. And I think that um, that's a pretty common refrain that a lot of folks are experiencing, uh, not just me. Um, yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah. So, you know, I think like what's important is to not be like ridiculously hard on yourself if you're not, you know, if you're having a week that's like not your best, you know we've it's it's totally normal to like not be at like absolute maximal productivity or you know feeling like you know extraordinarily excited to like get up and like face the day but you know you got to you should get up and face the day and you should also understand that it is okay to sometimes not feel okay <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I don't want to say anything like disingenuous, like, oh, we're all in this together or hang in there or anything like that. But I guess that's kind of where my sentiment is, uh, is that, you know, I mean, obviously the whole world's going through a tough time right now. But uh, I would say in general, uh, this week I've started to see more people are, are having a little bit of difficulty adjusting to the current situation. But it seems like there's a lot more, um, you know, kind of positive expectation about the future. Still a lot of questions. Still a big question being, you know, what's the time frame of this kind of return to normalcy and how close to what we thought of as normal uh, eight weeks ago will the new normal be? But, uh, you know, things like uh, in Chicago, in our hometown, uh, the uh, hospital being jointly built by Army Corps of Engineers and FEMA, I think they're dramatically limiting the size of that. I think the original plan was for the temporary field hospital to be 3,000 beds, and they're now going to make that only 1,000 beds. Wow. I mean, that's uh, that's a really good sign, because I'm sure that the people who are making that decision are doing that based on, you know, kind of real-time boots-on-the-ground info, uh, that there's just no chance we won't need those extra 2,000 beds, at least for the foreseeable future. So that's great news, you know? Yeah, and it, I mean, and it shows that, by and large, people are listening. You know, like... If you're ordered to stay at home, please continue to stay at home. You know, yeah, the Lori it, Lightfoot memes are working. The, <laughs> For people who don't know, uh, there are some really great memes of the uh, 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 mayor of Chicago, a woman uh, named Lori Lightfoot. She's uh, been going around busting people in parties, and she has this particular look she can uh, get on her face that uh, that's very meme-worthy. So oh, check those out. Speaking of, Graham, when I was... I, when I was grocery shopping today, well, what, rather when I was walking back from, from grocery shopping, I walked past a family planning clinic on the way to the, you know, local uh, Amazon fancy food grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. And so... W was the line out the door there? No, no, there was people in there, but it was, there was no line out the door. But, oh, are you referring to the, to the family planning clinic or the grocery store? 
Yeah, the family planning clinic. No, but I assume that like, uh, industry's busy right now. But there was this like there was this this family that were none of them were wearing masks, and they they were just going up and like berating people who were going to walk into this family planning clinic, totally breaking social distancing. Nice. Well, and I uh, I, I, I yelled we, we at them uh, when I was already most of the way down the block that I'm going to call the cops on them. I did not call the cops, hmm. but yeah. <laughs> so uh, they were quite simply trying to, you know, recommend against abortions or what was their shtick? Like, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. They what had were they the, what were they ad- advocating for or against? Uh, it, they were generally, you know, pro-life people. You know, they, ah. they pulled out the sort of like standard uh, gruesome posters and all the rest. But uh Gotta love those folks. Yeah, exactly. And I was just like, I was like, you know, if you guys were really so pro-life, you wouldn't be like spitting in people's faces. <laughs> <clears throat> and you'd probably be wearing a mask in today's world. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> they could uh, kill as many people as they, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote, save. Uh, but by the way, started. Does, you know, yeah, not not that this is what our show's about, uh, although we, we don't shy too far away from dipping into politics from time to time. But do those like, does that ever work? Do those people ever stop someone from getting an abortion who otherwise would have? It just seems like seems like very much the wrong way to go about it. Hundred percent. But I I also believe that, you know, it's a fairly the the reason why I said I was going to call the cops on them is because, you know, there was a, a young woman who was alone in a car and she seemed as though she was trying to get, you know, she was intent on getting out. And they just had, they were just these, like, four, this, like, mom, dad, you know, and, like, two, you know, two girls, like, like, just, like, yelling at them, or yelling at her, sorry. Um, and it was just, like, ugh, it was terrible. And, and you know, <laughs> if I have a future in politics, which I used to want to, but uh, don't anymore, but the uh, maybe the, yeah, definitely. For your, for your um, sake, not, not the rest of everybody's sake. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's true. Um, maybe this statement will come back to bite me, but I, I'm politically conservative. But even if I were king for a day and I had the option of eliminating abortion, I wouldn't. I wish yeah. we lived in a world where abortions weren't necessary, but I think that it's completely ridiculous to explore eliminating them from our culture. And I don't understand why why people uh, protest that so vehemently. Yeah, it's just because a bunch of it's because a bunch of personal stance. Well, it's a bunch of old boomers want to control women's bodies. Just seems like the world we would live in would be a worse place if we eliminate that as an available option. Yeah, you know, like like like, do we want to go back to like uh, back alley coat hanger abortions? Like, oh, uh, oh, come on, Graham, this is a family show. Well, I know, but why that family was out there advocating for that. That's what these people are teaching their parents. It's terrible. Anyway, it's, it's ter- again, politically conservative, don't believe the government should tell you what to do with your body. Big advocate of free speech, but uh, not when your free speech infringes on mine. Like, it sounds like that woman's, you know, choices were being infringed upon. Indeed. Anyway. Anyways. So those people, those family friendly show about technology and venture capital. I was was just going to say we were, you know, if if they're responsible for spreading this terrible virus, I I hope they're asked to, uh, you know, dig ditches outside of town. Yeah. Shame on them. Shame on them. Indeed. Okay. So (laughs) So, 
Don't worry, Graham. We can cut that all out. Uh, <laughs> all right, I, hey, what's in the show's in the show. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah. I, I have no problem with anything. Okay, all right. Well, hang, hang on, hang on. Hey, before we, before we, before we dive into um, the uh, the the extremely exciting topic of of uh, Mary Meeker's uh, coronavirus trends report, um, we, we should probably introduce ourselves. Yeah, let's do that. I'm uh, Graham Peck. I'm a venture partner with Cultivation Capital. Cultivation is a Midwest-based uh, VC that invests primarily in ag tech, um, life sciences, and specifically the team that I'm on is our software technology and IT team. Uh, we invest in seed and Series A stage uh, uh, B2B uh, SaaS or otherwise recurrent revenue uh, technology businesses. In addition to that, um, I help uh, I help a variety of companies, large and small, to build and scale their software development teams with uh, with some great folks in Ukraine uh, at Brightgrove. Jason, uh, who, who the heck are you? Uh, sorry, I was, I was twiddling twiddling my uh, my my quarantine mustache. <laughs> Jason, are you are, are you playing with your mustache over there? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm waiting for the full. I, I'm waiting to go like full, uh, like Gilded Age, you know, like like top handlebar style financier. Hmm? Yeah, a handlebar style mustache. Yeah, oh my god, yeah, totally. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna have to post a picture with uh, with one of these episodes of Jason. He's he's a little camera shy. I well, no. See, only a few people get to see this. Uh, you know the the you know my my lovely my lovely uh, face. So, uh, man, who am I? So, uh, hey everybody, my name is Jason Rowley. Um, apropos of our earlier discussion, uh, I go by Jason D Rowley on the internet uh, because I'm. Trying to uh, out Google Juice uh, the uh, Jason Rally that owns the Phoenix Suns. Um, when I'm not engaged in uh, petty uh, internet contests with people who I will never meet and who will never meet me, uh, I am a researcher at Golden.com, a early stage, uh, see, well, see, dish stage uh, company uh, based in San Francisco, California, that is seeking to build the canonical source for knowledge. Uh, and when I'm not doing that, uh, I do some volunteer work with the Python Software Foundation, helping give early stage uh, startups free booth space at PyCon US, which obviously due to the uh, global public health emergency did not happen in person. Um, but I was lucky enough to interview uh, four of our startup row companies and we got that on video. So contradicting everything I just said, you can see my lovely face on the PyCon YouTube channel where I interview for the companies that would have been featured this year on Startup Row. Um, oh, we should uh, put a link to that in our uh, in our show notes and help yeah, promote they're up. Uh, as yeah, well. Yeah. Each, each video um, is like 20, 25 minutes. So what, you, what, what are those four companies? You want to give them a quick shout out? Yeah, so started with um, Ico.ai. Uh, they are a New York-based uh, startup that is uh, actually pre-launched, but they have a product that they're sort of uh, in the middle of rolling out to prospective cu- uh, customers. Um, they are a smart email inbox, um, and they're initially targeting themselves at... Uh, the sort of like financial profession. Um, so taking stuff like uh, just like gestures that you would normally have to do inside an email message, you know, take those out and make them little buttons, you know, 
in your inbox feed. Um, another one is called R2C. They're a cybersecurity company, um, which, uh, quite frankly, that's it's a little bit outside of my like. They're a little too technical for me to totally understand exactly what they do. But they build a uh, they have an open source uh, tool that uh, can go through uh, Python code and identify. Um, possible vulnerabilities in in a company's uh, code that they're uh, going to move to production. Um, next, we have a company called Slapforge, and uh, that's S-L-A-P-P-F-O-R-G-E. Uh, they are really interesting. They're based in... Uh, uh, Shoot. Well, it's um. Well, one of their offices is in Georgia, and their other office, I think, is in Malaysia. Please don't quote me on that. Uh, and they built an in-browser, uh, totally serverless IDE that allows developers to uh, write, uh, you know, serverless type code and have it deploy automatically to the cloud. It's really neat. Um, again, a little bit outside of my area of expertise, but. Uh, our judging committee, Graham, of which you were part, thought that they were pretty neat. Um, and then finally uh, is one that uh, I can actually understand and explain quite well. Um, they're called Tonic.ai, a, another company that is split between Georgia uh, and San Francisco. And they are in the business of uh, basically generating synthetic data. And so that's data that looks, feels, and behaves and is statistically similar, if not 100% identical to, uh, you know, real live, you know, user data that a company might, you know, otherwise want to do operations on. Uh, but it allows like your product team to uh, use a fake data set um, rather than doing operations on uh, sensitive user data. Um, and their sort of main target market is uh, sort of like, recently education just because everybody's teaching you know and doing all the home homeschool stuff uh healthcare some government stuff um all the rest so those four companies i think they're really really neat uh please go check out those videos and uh give those uh give those companies a check uh go to their websites see what they're working on um oh, it's really all cool. pretty neat so when was pycon uh, scheduled to happen Ooh. it would have happened already had it well, happened in uh, in person? Well, yeah, it would have. I think it, it would have wrapped up. So, um, the whatever that week of the whatever the weekend of like the twentieth was going to be. Oh, so a couple of weeks ago now. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, but um, the main conference is like th- uh, two three days. Um, it's two days, and then there's the jobs fair. And then afterward, there's a language summit, which I, I don't go to because uh, my I, I'm not a core contributor to the Python language itself. And I think that goes on maybe for another week, plus or minus, typically. But I wouldn't know because I, I don't go. Um, Got it. But, um, but yeah, at, at this point, had in, a, in an al- alternate universe, it's my understanding that PyCon would have been fully wrapped up at this point. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah. Anyways, man, we uh we <laughs> as it stands right now, we've recorded for twenty minutes. We haven't really Oh, we haven't even talked about anything yet. Wow. I know. We've we've just been um just just yakking like a couple of lads on the internet. Um what are we gonna be talking about today? Um 
So we're going to talk about Mary Meeker's report, uh, really the team at Bond's report, uh, that's kind of a special COVID edition, I think, as the primary focus. Yeah. And I, it was I, a really, really interesting, I thought, and really detailed 29-page report inclusive of, you know, kind of the notes beyond slides. And before so. we get into actually discussing the contents of the report, um, which, Graham, I'm willing to bet you've reviewed in more detail than I have, um, although I've, I've given Ooh. almost everything a read. Um, uh, it's, rare, it's rare that I'm more prepared than you. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Graham, you'd be very surprised. A um, little, little bit of background on Challenge that. accepted. <laughs> Uh, thank God we're not being paid for this. Um, so, so uh, Mary Meeker is a uh, venture investor. She got her start um, at uh, J.P. Morgan, I believe. No, I lied. She was at Morgan Stanley. And I think maybe before that she was at J.P. Morgan. But she really um, came to uh, the fore at Morgan Stanley, um, where in the sort of first technology bubble, she was sort of... Uh, really ahead of the curve there, um, helped uh, the bank do a number of large technology IPOs, and her reports on the state of the internet uh, sort of led her to get the unofficial official title of queen of the internet. Um, after leaving Morgan Stanley, she went and worked at Kleiner Perkins Caulfield & Byers, uh, where she served as a partner and uh, eventually led most of uh, KPCB's late-stage investment stuff and then recently, last year, I believe, 2019, but it may have been 2018, um, she branched off to launch her own uh, late-stage investment fund called Bond Capital, uh, which has raised uh, a billion dollars or so uh, and has deployed it into a number of late-stage uh, technology deals, um, including uh, Stripe and a few other folks. Is that a decent decent enough backgrounder? Yeah, I think that's a great overview, uh, and uh, and it's definitely helpful for anyone who doesn't know who Mary Meeker is. I can't believe that there are people who are listening to this who don't know at least tangentially who Mary Meeker I is. I would be very surprised if there were. Okay. I what? mean, I continue to be surprised that people listen to this. D oh, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, all five of you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so um, so the folks over at Bond Capital, they released this, uh, as Graham said, a quite lengthy uh, report, um, which, and I say this 100% with uh, affection for Mary Meeker and all of her analytical work. Um, on the one hand, it's like, it's like, well, thank you so much for stating, you know, some obvious things that are sort of superficially easy to observe. But what uh, she has done both at Morgan Stanley and then at Kleiner Perkins uh, with her Internet Trends Report and now at Bond Capital with the Internet Trends Report and now the Special Edition. Um, they do a fantastic job of pulling out data to actually back up the trends that they are, you know, that, that one can intuitively pick up from what's going on in the market. Yeah, and I think she did that yet yet again, and and not surprisingly, I really liked some some of the parts. And and yeah, you make a great point that there's a lot of detail in here, and and a lot of these things are probably obvious to intuit. Uh, you know, on the surface, if you you know, unless you're living completely under a rock right now, but I think that the way that they back these things up with data 
really good. You know, one of the things that's interesting, and this is near the beginning, is the comparison of unemployment and market returns, I think, now versus um, versus in... Uh, in the Great Depression in 19, you know, essentially 30. 30 yeah. yeah. And that I think is is really interesting. The corollary that she she draws, you know, there um, kind of scarily her, you know, comments are the market or, you know, the graphs at least show that the market is coming down in similar way overall to what started the, you know, great, great uh, depression. Uh, however, unemployment's already up higher and growing faster uh, than, than it was then, which is, which is a little scary. Yeah. And it also implies that even though, at least as we record today, which is uh, May duh, 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 two May second. May second. There we go. It's not May two. It's May second. Um, words are hard, Graham. Uh, as as we record today, May second. You know, we are off of the lows um, that sort of were were laid down in the end of you know March, early April. Um, you know, the quote unquote the the the, the stock market has quote unquote recovered. A little bit, but you know, I think that this is. Uh, I think that what we might be experiencing right now is a little bit of a. What's the term? Is it a is it a bull trap, where everybody gets a little excited and then uh, that things are going to go up, and then actually things are, are just a, just going to resume their steady march downward for a while. Yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't heard that term specifically, but if that's what the term is for that, then that's what I feel like we're in. And I'm someone who wants to be optimistic on, you know, on where things are going right now. But boy, it certainly, you know, looks a little bleak in my opinion. Um, and you know, I think I think one of the things that's interesting is I just heard, uh, I think yesterday on May first, they they noted with where April ended uh, that I think April was the best month in the last like 30 years in the stock market. I mean, yeah. Like, Which is an interesting thing to happen in the midst of all of this, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and I completely agree that I think it's probably like artificially high, but. Uh, well, it's it's that plus it's like, it's like, okay, so you're you're also talking about a quote unquote recovery from one of the absolute worst weeks of of trading of all time. Oh so, yeah, of course. So like of yeah, course. of course of course like like things go down incredibly quickly <laughs> and incredibly far and then things go up a little bit quick, you a know, little a little bit, bit quickly and not quite as far. Like in relative terms it'll look like freaking amazing. But right. in absolute terms it's you're still off, you know, 10, 15, 20%, you know, depending on the depending on the company you know, from high or more, uh, you know, from highs that were laid down, I guess, sort of at the uh, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Yeah, you know, and one of the thing, one of the other things, and this isn't specifically in Mary Meeker's report, but this was in something else I read this week. One of the things that's interesting is that um, before there was much spread of COVID, before there was much spread of COVID outside of um, China, um, the Chinese stock market had recovered to being down only about 2%. You know, there, there was a substantial decrease in the Chinese market, yeah. which then rebounded to being down only 2% until there started to be substantial case counts of COVID outside of China. Hmm. 
again, I, that that's actually, you know, as I kind of referred to in the beginning, that's kind of a positive thing in some ways, you know, showing that hopefully um, as things get better, there can be, you know, strong rebound of the economy. That's my hope. Uh, well, I mean, hope hope away, but uh, I I do not believe that we, I don't think that, let's just put it this way. I, I personally do not think that this is going to be a V-shaped recovery. Yeah. Because like, because you have to think about it, and Graham, we talked offline about this a couple of days ago. Like, you have to think about all of the economic activity that is not happening today, that needs to happen today for us to have certain industries be at full capacity six, nine, 12 months from now. So all the Midwestern farmers who aren't able to plant their grain because they either aren't able to access seeds or aren't able to access the chemicals and fertilizers and all the rest necessary to, you know, make a viable crop of whatever they're growing, you know, that necessarily means that, you know, eight months, you know, whatever down the road, um, or, you know, six, seven months down the road, they're not going to be able to harvest their soybeans. And those soybeans that have not been harvested are not going to find their way into, I'm doing too many negatives here, but like, like there isn't going to be enough soy to feed the nation's pigs and chickens, uh, you know, nine months from now, because people, you know, in late March, April, you know, were not able to put their seeds down. Yeah, it's not that I don't, it's not that I, now I'm going to do a double negative. It's not that I don't disagree that there will be, you know, kind of ripple effects of this. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that there, there certainly will be, um, and I think those will be felt for a while. Uh, but the same article, which again is, is not Mary Meeker's report, but the same article um, that I referenced that, you know, indicated that the Chinese public markets were down only 2% until there was more global surge of cases, you know, also indicated that there, the, in 1918, when the Spanish flu hit, which killed, you know, 40 to 50 million people worldwide, which at the time was 5% of the, the earth's population, um, their, uh, uh, Per capita GDP uh, was down 6% and consumption was down 8%, which are big numbers, uh, but not like as shockingly huge as one as one might think. And obviously, this is a different you know, set of circumstances, um, and, and we live in a very different world than we did 102 years ago, um, but, but all of that being said, you know, that's probably the best and most recent thing of similar measurable economic impact. And after you were a couple years out of it, uh, there was no measurable impact on the economy. And in fact, in that point in time, they the belief is that the economy not only made up for the loss uh, in, in the immediate, you know, 18 or so months that that global pandemic happened, but it also, in fact, caught up the ground of where it would have been had it never happened in the first place. Again, not to say that terrible things didn't happen. Of course, it's a tragedy of 40 or 50 million people lose their lives. Um, This disease is much more, uh, you know, spreadable, but thankfully much less deadly than that, at least in so far as what we've seen, you know, thus far. Oh, yeah. all, of our, I mean, almost, all of our normal disclosure, you know, disclaimers about not being a virologist, but yeah, 
Graham, Graham and I were not lawyers, doctors, <laughs> nurses. Neither, neither epidemiologists. No, not not essential employees. Not you know we're <laughs> we're just again we're just a couple of folks talking about some stuff on the internet. Um, let's see what else was what else was really interesting here. I I, I do enjoy all the trends. Uh, just like revisiting some of the trends of like, um, this is a this is a quaint one. You know, international air flights. Uh, flight arrivals in millions in like late 2018 was just getting to like 1.5 billion flight arrivals per year. Probably was you know a little higher than that in in 2019. But um, yeah, I read a a fun st- a, well fun depending on your definition of it, an interesting statistic to be sure. Um, that uh, I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong here, but I ballpark I think I'm correct. Um. You know, like same time last year, the TSA was processing like something like a few million passengers a day or something like that. Uh, And, you know, recently they've been processing like 100,000 passengers a day, if that. Yeah, you know, there are something like there were going into this crisis, there were approximately 100,000 commercial flights a day done by something like 20,000 or so commercial aircraft, I think. Obviously, that's, uh, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but with what my family's, uh, you know, business is, which is manufacturing um, for the turbine engine industry, uh, mostly for commercial aircraft, we pay pretty close attention to those numbers. And yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you don't have to go far on the internet or Wall Street Journal to find, uh, Tons of references to the number of planes that are that are parked. It's interesting to see, you know, things like there's a lo- mainly logistics only, and that meaning that that's not a passenger air, airport in California where there's uh, low humidity, so it's good to store aircraft. That has basically just been, you know, almost all of their taxiways and actually one I think of their two runways has been just parked full of aircraft. Oh my god! Because you know uh, you just got to have some place to put them. Yeah, but the numbers are like it, it's down, like air traffic, at least passenger air traffic is down ninety percent. We'll see how long that takes to recover. Um, I, I'm I'm not flying anywhere anytime soon. No, me either. Unfortunately, that that's been one of my biggest personal frustrations is in this is uh, you know I travel a fair amount and uh, in some ways it's been nice to have a respite from that, but at the same time I miss it. I mean, of course, I miss seeing other people, but I also miss seeing other places uh, and to the extent that travels international languages, culture and food. But, yeah. but even domestic, you know, I, I, I really miss traveling. That's yeah. my biggest. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that, uh, you know, kind of bucket. But that's been my biggest, I think, personal frustration in, in all of this. Yeah. Now, I mean, like there is some amount of. You know, there is some amount of good news that is captured in this report. Um, you know, the, the the response to this has been truly global. Um, you know, there's been a tremendous uh, routing of research and development efforts toward coming up with, you know, vaccines and treatments and other sorts of uh, ways to alleviate the worst of what, you know, this virus uh, can you know, can do and and has wrought so far. 
Um, I found the the charts on, and this is, keep in mind, this report was published, uh, when was it? Late, late April. April, well, mid-April, April 17th. So a couple weeks ago, the numbers here are slight, a little bit outdated, but just, just for the sake of comparison. Um, the folks over at uh, Bond Capital, uh, referencing data collected by uh, PubMed and the National Institutes of Health, uh, found that, again, at least as of middle of April, um, you know, there were nearly 3,000 research reports published in the first three months of this outbreak. Uh, as compared to, you know, 164 reports during the H1N1, was that swine flu or avian flu? Swine flu. I think H1N1 swine, yeah. Yeah. During the, during the first three months of the swine flu, uh, and only 41 research papers uh, published in the first three months of of the, of the first s- original SARS, SARS outbreak. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then it goes on to talk about uh, there being at least 499. Uh, they they say, of course, approximately 500 um, clinical trials. Uh, you know, that have started again in that same uh, you know approximate time frame. With uh, oh, I'm not finding the stat here, but. I think they quote the number of, uh, oh yeah, about 5 million expected clinical trial participants. Um, So 500 trials encompassing 5 million people also within that same kind of time frame. So I, I did think that that was really encouraging that, uh, that, that one of the one of the good pieces of good news here is the way that that technology and global connectedness is being used for good, um, you know, in light of this this situation. And, you know, I mean, certainly, uh, of course, we see healthcare workers all day, every day on the front lines. And thank you to everybody who's who's out there saving, uh, you know, the lives of our friends and family members. Um, but I think that uh, there there's a uh, kind of unsung hero in all of this that deserves a big pat on the back. And that's the global scientific community. Totally. You know, I think have been responding really, really well well, um, you know, to, to this, uh, quickly developing and obviously terrible situation, but, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, the, the folks can develop a vaccine and or cure, uh, that, that, uh, make this thing much less deadly, uh, and viral pretty quickly. Again, I think, you know, pretty quickly is a relative term. Yeah. In vaccine and, development, and, and probably talking, Many, many months, probably more than a year yeah. until that can be produced, tested for, you know, safety and efficacy, um, uh, you know, and and effectiveness, of course. Uh, and then, you know, by the time you can make 7.8 billion doses of it, um, that, that's, that's obviously a lot. But yeah, n- not nonetheless, it's it's uh, great to see the worldwide scientific community uh, come together and be as be as successful and responsive as possible uh, in such difficult times. And it's been very heartening to see that even though in many ways politics has failed, a lot of politicians, you know, have failed to adequately respond to the severity of this virus for various reasons, um, be it uh, lack of familiarity with the science itself, be it, you know, for, you know, economic, you know, it, interests in economic as opposed to like human welfare outcomes, stuff like stuff like that. Like people in general have been 
uh, paying attention to what science, you know, what scientists and public health officials, you know, and all the rest are suggesting. So even though, as we record today, you know, in the middle beginning of May 2020, even though quote unquote states are like reopening their economies, many people are not going back to those very businesses that are now nominally open because rightfully so they have reason to believe that it's not safe to do so. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's, that's something that's interesting in the same article that I've referenced a couple of times that talks about China's economy and other things like that. Again, jumping back to the Spanish flu of, of a hundred years ago. Um, interestingly enough, they found that the economic results were better uh, and were achieved, the, the return to normal uh, economically was achieved faster in communities that had a quicker and longer and more strict uh, MPI or non-pharmaceutical intervention to the Spanish flu. Um, so again, it's, I, you know, I see a lot of people today arguing for protesting for, uh, you know, our economy to reopen. And it seems like a lot of people make the argument that the disease maybe in the end isn't that bad and the cure for the disease can't be worse than the disease itself or else let's just have the disease. I definitely agree with that, but I think that people are not understanding that message when they say that. And and again, the the best thing to do for the economy right now coincidentally is also the best thing to do for individuals and their lives. Um, yeah, so but also saving the, the most lot. Well, I agree. I mean, <laughs> we should be, we, we, we should ha- take a humanist response first. Yeah. It's just right now they're one and the same. Although the argument yeah, exactly. is being made that the better thing for the economy is to return it to its quote unquote open state. Mm. Um, that is not the better thing for the economy long term. Right. And it's definitely not the best thing for individuals, uh, you know, kind of in the interim. And of course, you know, the argument is not that it never will be. It'll be fine to return to that at some point. But that point, I don't think is, you know, yesterday. Uh, when some states started doing that. No. Florida, by the way, being one of the most aggressive, it seems, with their reopening. I think they're reopening on, quote unquote, reopening on Monday. And they were one of the last major population states to close as well. Yeah. So I don't, I, I have a lot of questions about whether the duration of people nominally staying at home uh, has been long enough in uh, in Florida. And the thing is that people also aren't really staying, you know, like a lot of people say they're staring, staying home, but like also everybody's getting a little stir crazy. At least now in Chicago, like today is a just. Oh yeah, because the weather is nice. Oh my God, today is a transcendently beautiful day. And looking at my uh, Apple uh, wrist communicator device at uh, three, it is 71 degrees, a little bit cloudy, Mostly sunny, perfect weather. Do you know how many people I saw, quote unquote, you know, just like going out for essential business, uh, just traipsing around the streets of Chicago today? How many people? Many people. I didn't count. But like, it's not like I had a little clicker device or whatever. But there was a lot of people. And I'm like, this is. Call call the mayor. This is no bueno, right? Get her, got, get her on it. Gotta, gotta get that like that death stare from like Lori Lightfoot. Oh man! But um, I mean, like, 
it I know I mean it sucks that everybody's supposed to be stuck in their houses or apartments or you know group facilities or where, wherever they are. I mean, let's not even get into the horror show that is like the American prison system during all this. But yeah, like prisons and retirement homes, I am very glad I well for multiple reasons, but uh, certainly uh, COVID among them. I'm glad I don't live in e- either of those types of uh, you know facilities, li- living establishments at the moment. Yeah, um, but like, like even in states that are taking this more seriously and countries and, and I mean, and sorry, in cities that are taking this more seriously, I would say that Chicago has been pretty serious in its, in its response, maybe not as serious as like San Francisco, but it's, it's not like we're uh, trying to think of a place that, that never really shut down in the first place. But um, North Dakota. Sure. Why not? Um, South Dakota actually, I think had a lesser response than North, but it was anyway. still I mean, the grocery store was still packed. I was not able to maintain six feet of distance, even if I tried. Yeah. So. (sighs) Yeah, you know, it's interesting because that seems like an infinitely solvable thing, right? I mean, I've heard some grocery stores are simply taking away the number of carts until there's few enough carts that, you know, ostensibly the population inside cannot exceed the number that, you know, would put everyone six feet apart comfortably. Dude, I mean, I'd be okay with like a system where it's just like, Oh, are you born on an even day or an odd day? Like, well, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, I have a couple of close friends who live in um, Colombia, um, or or they spend the winter in Colombia. And Colombia, ha- you know, is a relatively populous country. I think it, it has, you know, something like forty nine million people as a population. They have, I think, about four hundred people in hospitals and a few hundred deaths. Um, they have, I believe, uh, canceled all of their large public gatherings until the end of next calendar year already. Things like concerts and sporting events and things of that nature. Wait, the end of 2021? That's what I believe I heard. Oh my uh, God. I, you know, we, we could do some, some uh, real-time, real-time Googling? Fact, uh, you know, f- follow-up to confirm if that's 2020 or 2021. But they, uh, and they are working on measures to reopen parts of their government um, they stopped all flights intra-country even, uh, although I believe those are beginning again, uh, I think, a week from Monday. Um, but all of that being said, uh, they've done a relatively good job of controlling it. And unless you're going to an emergent you know, medical visit, um, you are only allowed to leave your house on certain days of the week that correspond to the ending digit of your government-issued ID including for groceries and other things. So it's like, hey, plan for being in, inside for at least one week because only one-seventh of the population for truly non-emergent reasons can leave their house on any given day. And that, that seems would like never fly really, in the United uh, States. <laughs> no, that would never fly in the United States, but, uh, but it certainly seems like a way that, uh, that they've done a good job of controlling things. And I think you might be able to get one warning, but there is a substantial fine that is equivalent to more than one month's average income if you're caught out twice in public when it's not your day of the week. Yeah. Anyway, so... It, it's it's interesting, but again, that response has uh, saved a lot of lives. It has. So, you know, if if you look at a country of nearly fifty million people with just a few hundred deaths, that's not, you know, the U.S. population is much larger. 
but uh, our death toll is substantially higher too, obviously. I would be curious to know how many other people are dying because they aren't leaving their houses. Like, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know that like, at least in the United States, there's a lot, you know, there's a number of people who are not going to the hospital when they have a heart attack and they die at home. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously one of the side effects of this, I think, is that every other condition becomes more deadly, right? Totally. Uh, Every other potentially deadly condition is more deadly under the current circumstances than it was, you know, leading up to February, let's call it. Yeah. Um, For exactly that reason, lack of availability of healthcare resources and uh, uh, reticence maybe to, to seek them when, when necessary. Yeah. So there was so, a, sorry. Yeah, I, I, no, no, I, I agree. I agree. It, it, it would be interesting to know if that's true also in places like Colombia. And, and obviously I don't know. Yeah. So there's a couple of other high level trends that were brought up. And I think that, you know, there might be that we have time definitely to, to dive into one or two of them. Um, you know, like in this report discuss, you know, the sort of like rebalancing between work and life, you know, sort of citing, the now sort of infamous numbers around Zoom going from like 100 million users to 200 million users. Um, you know, they did a bunch of, they did a, a the, you know, Bond ran a, a survey of some of its uh, portfolio companies. And this was an informal survey, but asking questions about remote work, like, you know, at a high level, do you think your business is running more efficiently? Are teams and individuals more productive? You know, are there any other sort of like upside surprises? And, you know, a lot of the findings are, again, kind of like what what a lot of us might be able to just intuit. But it's really helpful to see some of these on paper, you know. Just to be clear, I think uh, I, I, I think that Zoom went from 10 million to 200 million. Um, I'm not sure if that's daily or monthly active users. I think 200 million is the actual might be the. Oh, shoot. Is that? The, yeah, the, that's daily the, the meeting gra- participants. That's DAUs. Yeah, but the graph shows in December of 2019, there were 10 million, uh, and now that's 200. So they have 20 x in the past four months. Oh, Obviously, most of that growth coming in the last probably six weeks. Graham, if only I left journalism and was able to invest in Zoom earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. Uh, no kidding. So let's see what else. You, You know, one of the other interesting trends that I thought is, you know, a career that obviously I think is, you know, is probably going by the wayside over the next few decades. But, uh, you know, ZipRecruiter or others were seeing that um, uh, like flatbed truck drivers, uh, like there's like a 1000 percent increase in the job postings. So as much as 20 to 30 million plus uh, new people have filed for unemployment. Uh, I hope none of them are truck drivers or can otherwise be active participants in the supply chain because there's huge demand for those folks right now. So that was certainly something that I saw that that stuck out at me that was interesting and I thought was a really, really positive trend is obviously while so many people are filing new for unemployment, if you happen to have that skill set, um, certainly there's huge demand for for your services. Yeah, because everybody else is stuck at home. I also really like this section that talked about um, digital and esports. Oh um, yes, you know th- there are some really I- impressive and growing numbers of uh, 
you know, kind of uh, people participating in esports, you know, because obviously with pervasiveness of, uh, you know, of connected internet technology, you know, I think that uh, there was a March Madness uh, where uh, the computers simulated what would have happened with the teams had they played. Um, and that's, you know, kind of an interesting thing and obviously very different. They used a 2008 version of a, a game where they could customize teams and colors uh, and uh, things like that. And uh, they, they ran a digital March Madness uh, with the final four uh, starting kind of the, the middle of last month. Um, so, so that I think is, uh, you know, is interesting. There've been, there've been real races, uh, we, we obviously with digital technology, not cars, but, uh, you know, famous NASCAR drivers, uh, you know, have been, uh, racing one another, uh, from their couches. The guy who won a race was, was not wearing shoes when he did so, um, <laughs> Dale Earnhardt uh, Jr. came out of retirement and got second place in one of these races. So that's Gosh, dang. Uh, just just interesting stuff like that. No, uh, I mean like it's and I think that's great. Oh no, me too. I mean like I definitely have have over the course of I mean it wasn't just like with COVID nineteen, but you know over the past like you know three six months, like I slowly turned into the you know to the type of person who you know. Every so often while I'm working, like I'll have some sort of like passive esports something happening in like the corner of my monitor, in part because like I like just like having some background noise. But like also, you know, it it can occasionally be entertaining. And when I'm able to focus more of my attention on it and not like on the stuff that I'm supposed to be doing, uh you know, I uh, I do get some some entertainment out of it, and in many ways, more entertainment than I got out of watching quote unquote real sports. Because, like, you know, Graham, I I don't know if you've ever noticed this about me, but um, I am not, you know, six eight and uh, able to uh, dunk uh, a basketball, right? Really? Like, watching? I would have guessed you could. <laughs> watching. <laughs> Watching basketball is fun, but like I never have that feeling of like, oh man, I could do that, right? Right. And I like I am not necessarily like I'm definitely f the furthest from being like a world class, you know, gamer uh, relative to you know basically anybody. But like I've had like little moments of glory while playing some video games before. And I can watch somebody else playing video games or a group of people playing video games together and say like, oh, man, I've tasted a teeny tiny bit of, you know, of that action before. Of video game glory? Of video game glory. Um, and and like like in certain ways, it makes. It makes that type of viewing experience a little bit, maybe not as engaging you know, but like, but maybe a little bit more relatable and, and insofar as that's true, a little bit more enjoyable, but maybe less exciting. Yeah. You know, one of the other uh, points that I thought was really interesting was talking about the prevalence and, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of legislation coming out around this that's probably advancing things faster than it would have not in non-COVID times um, around telehealth and telemedicine. And I think that's a really good thing 
because, you know, hopefully our healthcare system, um, you know, and this is one of the things I think mentioned kind of towards the end of the report, again, as one of the potential long-term positive outcomes of this. But I think, um, you know, I think hopefully our healthcare system is showing that it needs some some overhaul, um, not just in the way it could respond to, you know, global pandemics or even local epidemics, uh, but just kind of overall the way that we treat people. Um, and, you know, telehealth is one of the things that's certainly been coming on the scene for a while that people are turning to a lot more right now for those regular, normal kind of doctor visits sure. um, that are not in need of, you know, emergent attention. And I think that that's great. Um, you know, if we can totally. get more of that so that you have more frequent check-ins on your health and with your healthcare providers uh, or providers, um, I think that that's a, that, that's a great thing. And if that can be done in some way, shape or form, that's both safe and private uh, but maybe even over Skype or similar to the format that we're using to record this very show, I think that's great. I, I would love to have more regular uh, communication with my doctor, oh, totally. even under normal circumstances. Just um, my doctor's a, a man, just him checking in on me uh, at more regular intervals than, hey, doc, I've seen you once every year or two. And you, you don't know, remember yeah, we, me because we, we I only for see five him for 15 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Right. And, and, uh, you're taking care of, by the way, do you know the average primary care doctor in the U S has a patient population between two and 3000 that they see? How can you no. effectively pro that's the number no. that I've heard. I heard that stat the other day. I can't quote where it came from and I'm not promising okay. it's reputable, but that struck me as a shockingly high number. How can one human being, even if they work their butt off around the clock and are very, very good at their job in terms of efficiency, how can one human effectively care for two to 3,000 people in a primary care physician kind of role? Even if they have the best support staff, the best referral partners, everything, it's, it just doesn't I mean, strike even me. If that number, even if that number is inflated by 10x, Right. Like, like, well, that's what I think a lot of the new healthcare startups are doing is they're uh, trying to give a doctor a patient load that's approximately 10 to 15 percent of the average is what I've heard. So they're only taking care of a couple hundred people. But those are the type of doctors that, you know, you text, you know, once every month or two or go see at least every quarter or two yeah. and they're checking in with you a lot more frequently. And I think people will find that the quality of their life as well as hopefully the quantity of their life will go up d during, oh my God. you know, I mean, who, with those types of regular check-ins. Well, also nobody enjoys sitting in a doctor's waiting room. I, I know I don't, although sometimes I do like looking at their fish tank. I will yeah, miss but the fish. I, no, I'm, I'm a little too old to, to read High Life magazine or whatever that... Uh, High Life? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Sorry. I was about to make a joke. I think You're thinking of High Life. You were thinking oh, of yeah, High Life. And then I was going to make a weed... has to be some sort of cannabis Then magazine, I was going to make but, a weed uh, joke. And, and then I... Yeah, I meant High Life. Then real-time follow-up is that it's not... High Life is a beer. High Times is a cannabis magazine. Okay, well, I, I meant highlights. You're right. We've really gone off the rails here. Grant. We've really gone off the rails. I, but tele telehealth is great. Yeah. Uh, um, in, in 
telehealth is great. You know, I actually, I mean, as somebody who's like worked from home for the past like three years, um, like I haven't properly gone into an office every day for like a long time at this point. Um, I am so happy that so much of the rest of the world is now like getting on board with this because like, oh yeah, it, it means that I'm going to have better tools at the end of this. Like, yeah, and probably more connectedness with people, uh, friends, and colleagues um, th- than you would have in some ways. And that was one of the things right? that was brought I, up. I think that as remote teams become more prevalent, um, companies that ha- that do have and even go back to having more centralized office-based infrastructure will think more about both allowing more of their people to work in situations that work better for their um, lives and geographic preferences or flexibility, but we'll think more about including those people than they had been. And I think that's true for families as well. You know, I've been seeing on on digital technology, I've been seeing my um, my siblings and a couple of cousins who are as close as sisters to me um, much more frequently. And our point was kind of, hey, wait a minute, why haven't we been doing this for years? And there was really no reason we didn't or couldn't. We're all technically savvy people, but now we get on FaceTime, even if it's just a drink a beer or Zoom or something, house party, a couple of times a week, and we just check in with one another. And that's actually really great. And that's a trend that I hope remains coming out of this it will mean it will require intentionality though right it's not going to be because like it's going to be very tempted to get you know to say oh we're back to normal and then all these sort of like you know feelings of togetherness and all the rest that we that a lot of us are feeling right now also keeping in mind that there's a huge percentage of the population that's feeling really alienated and lonely and vulnerable and that are stuck in abusive situations or, you know, dealing with psychological issues, like like understanding that there's a lot of people who are having an extraordinarily hard time of this. For those of us, for those of us that have the opportunity to, you know, become more connected with our friends and family, even if it's through a sort of safe, socially distant sort of a way, I think it's really great that 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 it's happening now. And I hope that it continues happening, you know, going forward. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. You know, I, I do fear that there are some negative things and even, even towards the end of the bond report where they point out things that they think are good trends. Mm -hmm. I question some of them. Um, Like in that, like what if section at the very end? Yeah, yeah, which is on the very last page, not including the disclaimer page. Um, You know, I agree with all of the six things that they point out, except for potentially number five. So let's read read the whole list, and and you're you're welcome to do so if you want. So, so, uh, so the the premise of this is kind of what if some good things come out of this? What if COVID nineteen serves as a common enemy that unites and serves as a force forcing function to number one modernize and improve government, healthcare, education, driving lower cost and higher efficiency. Number two, improve coordination between government and business for the good of the citizens. Number three. 
help people find jobs and training best suited to their skills and lifestyles or preferences. Number four, promote more considered consumption. Number five, get back to basics, including staying closer to home. And number six, bolster family connectedness, seriousness of purpose, community, and faith. And I I think that, you know, all of those things resonate with me, but I have mixed feelings about whether number five is um, is is beneficial. Because I think living in a global and connected society, as I've expanded my personal travel horizons, and as I said earlier in this episode, my biggest personal thing that I miss, and I travel mostly for business, but I always enjoy it when I do, regardless of where I'm traveling, um, you know, I think that living in a global, you know, kind of ecosystem and having the ability to, you know, jump in a metal tube and go nearly around the world at at a given moment is really a phenomenal thing. And I think that there's certainly you can paint negative consequences of that, including the spread of, you know, pandemic causing diseases. But I think there's a lot more good that comes out of that than bad. Um, as we become a connected global society, both of people and of goods, there was a chart earlier in this uh, in this article that that um, indicated something like thirty percent of goods, uh, you know, of global GDP travels cross country border, and so I think that that's a really good thing. And so one of my fears, kind of putting those two things together. And again, noting that I've got a, a bias that more air travel is good because that's the industry my family's served for three generations now. Um, but even trying the best I can to put that bias aside, I think nationalism and you know, kind of staying away from the rest of your community, uh, you know, your region and the world. Um, is bad. Um, again, again. I, I also, obviously, noting that social distancing will help us cure yeah. this immediate problem, but but I think it will be good uh, for people to be able to travel again and for global commerce to resume because I think that's been the engine on which we've built the global economy. I think, in general, a lot of what you said, you know, feels right to me, right? But. I also don't think that's what was being suggested by point number five. I think what might have been suggested by point number five are this, and we all know people like this, right? Folks who are, you know, consultants or whatever, and they're on a plane, you know, and living out of a suitcase, you know, five of seven days a week. Like, yeah, of course, like with, with any luck, I mean, and, and granted, there are some people that thrive on that sort of a lifestyle, but there's also a lot of people that don't. You know, hopefully over time, we realize that much of the stuff that we feel like we had to do in person, and this comes back to some of the earliest stuff that we talked about on this, you know, on this on this podcast when we first started recording, you know, long, long ago in the before times, you know, that people will s- slowly start to realize just how much or how little of what they do necessitates meeting in person to get the thing done, whether that's selling a thing, whether that's, you know, signing an acquisition deal, whether that's, you know, conducting a lot of due diligence, you know, for like venture capital funding, whether that's recruiting a team, whatever, whatever. A lot of that, I think, 
with any luck, we come to realize that you don't have to go across the country to seek those opportunities. Many of those opportunities, much of the time, are available from the comfort of a home office, assuming that you have the means to have like a home office and a computer and an internet connection and yada yada. Yeah, and I think we need to be sensitive to to that. I, you know, I hope there's people out there making sure that you know folks have good access to the internet. But but that yeah yeah I, I get that point. Um, although you know I also know a lot of people who uh, you know uh, probably wouldn't want to invest maybe six and definitely it seems like when you get into seven to eight plus figure investments. Um, a lot of people will say, you know, I don't know. I don't think that just uh, talking to this person uh, on Zoom a whole bunch is good enough. And I kind of want to be in the same room as them before I'm going to give them a bunch of my capital. Certainly heard that response from venture capitalists. So sure. so while, while I agree with you and while I think that there will be technology and other things that allow – for the closest corollaries you can find to digital travel. Uh, and while I think that, you know, I, I hope that this is a new paradigm for business in a lot of the ways that you just identified, I still think to some extent there's no substitute for meeting someone in person. And certainly if you are looking for the experiences around travel, even if I could put on a fully immersed VR type of travel experience, it still probably wouldn't be the same because you wouldn't be hearing the different language, seeing the different sights quite as crisply. Smelling the smells. And, and enjoying different food and things of those natures, which, you know, I, I, I only fluently speak English, but I enjoy hearing other languages and experiencing other food and different cultures in a fully immersed way. Um, and I think the technology is as good as it's ever been, and it's going to get better. And this circumstance are going to push it to get better. And as a guy who's a big technology advocate and a technology investor, I love that this situation is both being benefit by technology and also will push technology to be the best it's ever been. Um I just don't think there will ever be a complete substitute for getting on an airplane and going somewhere. Um, and yeah, I am yeah, very yes. excited to be able to begin that again safely. Nice. Knowing that it may look different than what it looked like a couple months ago. Yeah. And who knows when that's going to get started. But anyways, um, that's uh, right. we will include links to uh, the... Uh, trends report as well as some analysis published by uh, the likes of Axios and others of it. Um, we encourage everybody to give it a read. Um, it's some of the most thoughtful uh, analysis, at least I've seen from the uh, innovation finance you know side of things so far. Um, and uh, in general, you know another another bang up job from Mary Meeker and friends. Yeah, you know, I think one last uh, kind of closing thought from me. Uh, again, great job to the the team over at Bond as, as usual and as as expected from from Mary and the folks she surrounds herself with. But you know, I would also say, uh, you know, one of the biggest lingering questions for me, and I think we can talk about this separately, uh, you know, on another episode. 
uh, when there's more data to be had, but is how valuations in private deals uh, and and or other protection methods are being impacted by what's going on right now. And and I don't have a good answer to that. If anybody who happens to hear this has uh you know has clarity on it how private business uh, and deal valuations are being impacted by the current circumstances, which is something I'm sure we'll be able to see years from now when we look back at this time. But if anybody has any insight into that from a database perspective oh, yeah. in real us, time, please we'll, leak we us would all love your to knowledge. talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or or we, we could do a, a, a special guest appearance, which we've yet to do uh, on this. Ooh. That could be fun. Anyways, um, if you know if 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 you are willing, if you are if you have more information than the than we do than the than we do, which chances are, I mean, it's not hard. Graham and I are a bunch of knuckleheads. We we have no idea what we're talking about. So like like if you probably you probably know more about what's happening in the market than we do. Uh, we would as always appreciate clarity, insights, feedback, uh, and uh, and and continuing uh, love and support for ourselves and everybody in this community as we continue to deal with whatever the hell <laughs> whatever the hell all this oh man is all right uh, is uh, anything else graham no i think uh stay stay safe everybody all right that's good a, good a note as any to end on bye folks 